And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Considering the 2022 World Championship outcome looked fairly predictable going into this weekend, crikey, MotoGP packed a lot of tension into the Malaysian Grand Prix. From a Saturday of title contenders crashing all over the place and qualifying mid-grid, to a Sunday of endless team orders, no team orders, stress and intra-brand collision possibility angst as Ducati's man with one hand on the crown, Peko Banyaya, had to fight off his 2023 teammate Ania Bastanini for victory, we just never seemed far away from something going very wrong for a championship protagonist. But we get to the end of it with Banyaya looking near certain to be Ducati's first world champion since Casey Stone in 2007, albeit only after a very nerve-wracking weekend to get to that point. Uh, I'm Matt Beer, making my last appearance as stand-in for Toby Moody for the time being, joined by Simon Patson and Val Hurunchi. Um So to start off with, when you saw Bastianini and uh, Pekka Banyaya get inches apart quite that many times in the first half of a race that should have been quite easy for Ducati to control, um, what was going through your minds? How did you think that battle was going to end? With one of them falling off, um, I, I genuinely thought that the tension, the nervousness in the second half of that race and uh, both Bastianini's proclivity for a bit of aggression now and then when the situation calls for it and with Bagnaya's um, past history of being someone that has maybe had a tendency to fall off and put under a bit of pressure, I genuinely saw that going differently. Um, I... I I can't believe Ducati allowed such a situation to develop after all the talk we've had about team orders and everything. Um, but they did. They were obviously not happy about it as it was playing out. But in the end, I think that Bagnaya showed us that maybe he's put some of his own demons to bed and and you know rode a stellar race to, to take the win and eventually, inevitably, essentially take the championship in the process. I... I thought NA was going to win and I thought both were going to stay on and that Peko was just going to, especially after Martin went off, I thought Banyaya would just, Peko Banyaya would just consider waving the white flag really and settling for the for the 20 points on offer, which would, would have still been a very significant haul for the title race. But I guess, you know, maybe he felt he wasn't in a position to do that with uh, Fabio Quartararo closing towards the leading duo at some points in the second half of the race. But yeah, the thing with Anea is, from my recollection so far in MotoGP, he's you know he's wild, but he's fairly clean. I can't I can't really think of an incident of him sending somebody into the gravel or really even pushing them all that wide. Like he he goes for some fairly audacious moves, but they don't end up massively compromising his rivals. Like he's his sole overtake in the race on on Banyaya was really really quite aggressive but it, it, it didn't compromise Banya in any way it was just a really super tidy move on the brakes um so yeah but you know all that said I didn't expect it to go badly but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a significant possibility of it going badly that will have weighed on the Ducati higher-ups minds at every lap obviously as Davide Tardozzi put it the 
the flashbacks of uh, Andrea Iannone, Andrea uh, Giovicioso in 2016 or 15, 16, I think, in Argentina, uh, when basically Iannone knocked off Giovicioso and cost Ducati a double podium in an era where even single podiums weren't exactly coming very often, unlike now where it's a one, two, three every other weekend. Um, but yeah, you know, the fact that they were aware of that possibility and in, in fear and the fact that Bagna and Bastianini did get pretty close and the fact that it's, you know, as Simon puts it, it's less the threat of Bastianini knocking Bagnaia off the bike and more the threat of Bagnaia buckling under pressure, which again, it's, it's not a comment on, on Bagnaia or anything. It's just, you know, that'll happen sometimes when you really make riders push. I mean, that was a tangible threat. So it, it, it was surprising that it wasn't managed more firmly, I guess. Although some people believe it was. So there's also that. Well, th this is the thing that the camera spent an awful lot of the race on the Ducati pit wall, looking at people wandering up and down, having tense conversations. And, you know, Tardozzi made the 2016 Argentina comparison, but really that counted for basically nothing in the grand scheme of things. Ducati wasn't a title threat. Now it's both a title favorite with a lot of pressure expectation. And it's got to manage this political situation of having eight bikes on the grid, having everybody else fearing it can use that to manipulate results and trying really hard to not look like that's the case but maybe it should be the case if it's being sensible it, it's it's a kind of political and pressure expectation minefield in, in every race i think a lot of what we saw we saw a lot of shots of like senior jacati management huddled together in the pit wall and uh, i think maybe what we saw there was a plan for team orders that would have come into effect had Marco Bezzecchi passed Fabio Quattararo for third, like it looked like he was going to do at one point. Because in that case, then a Bagnaia win would have ensured the championship there and then. And I think had Bezzecchi closed down and overtaken the Yamaha rider, then there would have there was a plan in motion to, you know, the uh, well-remembered Ducati mapping it pit board signal that Jorge Lorenzo got a few years ago for management that would have happened then and and I think maybe that's why we saw that activity those discussions happening yeah and no I, I think Simon is correct also because after the race I think Paolo Ciabatti acknowledged that there would be a different conversation and different consideration had Bezzecchi indeed passed Quartararo so it's you know it's there's evidence that suggests that's what would have happened but maybe maybe it's fortunate in some way PR-wise that it didn't didn't come to that for Ducati anyway. Um, Spanish journalist Manuel Pacino asked in the press conference, I think it was him, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it was him, about a message to Bastianini, like a lap after he passed Bagnaia. It was a pit board that said P1, lap eight, eight laps to go, and then just in, in capital letters, Bagnaia. And you you can certainly take that as maybe in order to let him pass i don't think so and it, that's been you know that's been denied by basically everyone and it more likely probably from where i'm sitting it was just it was just like take care please be careful and be mindful and remember who you're racing and like it's it's not like bastianini made bagnaia's life very easy over the rest of the race and the final lap you know, the, the, the point that's been mentioned by Bastianini, turn nine, he probably could have lunged down the inside if it was somebody else. Instead, he tried a move around the outside that was never going to come off and basically compromised the rest of his lap in the process. Yeah, it was clearly on his mind, but I still, he didn't make it easy. It was not, 
I would not call this like race manipulation or anything like that. I was just just looked like basically common sense to me. Now, whether you like the fact that Ducati is in this position to begin with, that's a again, that's a completely different topic. Yeah, um, I, I think that, like you said, that the pit board was more a reminder than an instruction. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe maybe it did influence the result of the race because maybe he did remember who it was behind him and that's why he didn't push the way that he would have against someone else. Um, and that's been a bit of a, a trend. You know, we saw that as far back as Mizano, where potentially a more aggressive overtake attempt on uh, on on Bagnaya by him in the last lap could have changed the outcome of the race, but he knew he could only be he could only push to a limit, uh, and he didn't go beyond it. Um, we saw something similar last weekend, where arguably Marco Pazecchi could have pushed harder to make an overtake on Bagnaya for third if it had been someone else. And yeah, I think anyone, I, I think anyone who thinks that there's some overarching Ducati team order, riders being told to drop back or not overtake each other, et cetera, et cetera, that, that isn't there, but there is this strongly recurring theme of don't do anything stupid to Peko that probably doesn't even need to be communicated to them, especially the, you know, those Ducati riders who are also VR46 Academy riders, because that's the thing. We're, we're focusing a lot on the whole Ducati team orders thing here, but there's also VR46 team orders. Like, let's not, you know, Bagnaia is the pinnacle of that system, and there's no way that uh, that, that Pizzecchi, Marini, and, and probably Franco Morbidelli, even though his teammate is fighting for the championship, is going to do something overtly stupid on purpose. Um, even though Morbidelli did do something stupid accidentally mm. earlier in the weekend. but should should also be noted that Morbidelli did acquiesce to a team order to let Fabio Quartararo through by the looks of it. So, you know, it's a game two sides can play, but only one side really has the riders. Um, in terms of, you know, obviously you've mentioned Bisecchi and there was also a case of Johan Zarco more or less putting his podium, podium chances away to allow Bagnaia to pick up a crucial third place and whatever wet race that was all of these races are the same now it's the season never ends but you know what I mean you know what I'm talking about um it was Spuram wasn't it I think, I think it, it was Spuram yeah 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 um yeah but anyway obviously the the fun consideration with Bastianini is that of course for him it is not that simple to let a, a podium or a race win go even though he's had a fair, fair few this year. But because, as alluded to before, and as Simon has had more or less between the lines confirmed to him by Carlo Pernat, uh, and Eva Sinning's manager, and also as Banya's teammate Jack Miller indicated in the lead up to in the lead up to the weekend, Ducati contracts are a very peculiar thing where the base salary is not so good, but then you have massive bonuses, which I think famously I don't know if this is rumored or confirmed. I genuinely can't remember, but I think it famously bit him in the butt when Alvaro Bautista joined the World Superbike program and like won 50 races to begin the season. That was apparently that was quite the the monetary hit. But yeah, on this occasion, Ene Bastianini is right in the thick of the fight for third place. And as Miller put it, um, I shouldn't I shouldn't quote him directly because this is going to earn earn this episode an explicit rating. But basically, Miller said. Third place is a lot, fourth place is nothing. There's every reason to believe it's the same for, for Bastianini, I think. Or at least that the difference is very substantial. Now, 
that's a consideration. If you're Ducati, the way you go about this is to just say, we pay you out the bonus anyway, go away, stop it. That seems to me like the, the absolute simplest way to do it. But like, I'm maybe I'm no financial genius. Maybe that's why I didn't make it <laughs> in finance. Not that I tried. The um, someone asked me on social media over the weekend, like, what sort of money were we talking about for a Ducati Championship win bonus? And and I think the way they worded it was like, were we ta- are we talking buy a house money? And we're not. We're talking buy a private jet money. Like we're we're talking maybe close to eight figures. It's a huge amount of money on the line here because at the end of the day, we're talking about a team that, that's invested a billion euros into the sport since their last championship and hasn't won one. So, you know, what's what's eight or 10 million euros? It's basically Jorge Lorenzo's salary for a year whenever he was with the team um, and when they paid things slightly differently. So why wouldn't you just chuck a load of money at these guys to motivate them into winning a championship? Um, just to go back to the, the Yamaha team order thing, send Morbidelli a message to basically let Quartararo through. Should be worth remembering that that came in the context of uh, Morbidelli being ready to serve a double lap, long lap penalty. So it's slightly different as well. It's it's not a, so much a case of um, a team. I don't know if they'd have done it if he hadn't had a double penalty. I, you know what? I, I think 100% it would have come, but that's speculation. I Maybe, cannot say that yeah. with absolute certainty. Yeah. But The other element we shouldn't forget alongside the massive amount of money on the line for Bastianini is the, the kind of political plus psychological situation of him coming into the works team next year as Bagnaia's teammate. And that, you know, that can work both ways. Kind of, you, if I was in his position, I'd both want to make sure I was being the goodest good boy possible at this point, so I'm arriving on very good terms. But also, I want Bagnaia to know that actually I can beat you and your your number one status isn't going to last very long and I want Ducati to know that as well. Ducati loves Bagnaia. Like, that much is clear. I don't think there's, there's any doubt about that. I think... Maybe Gigi Delini in particular loves Banyaya, but just in general, they love Banyaya. Uh, they loved him ever since they signed him to MotoGP. They loved him enough to completely ignore the fact his rookie season was no good. They <laughs> loved him so much that they, you know, didn't basically didn't really blink an eye to replace Andrea Docioso. They're one of the best riders in their history with Banyaya. Um, and they didn't blink. They, they love him enough not to punish him for getting arrested for drink driving mid-season. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For not and, even referencing it. Yeah. And ultimately, look, that that drink driving bit aside, like he's repaid their love. Uh, there's no question about that. He's both conducted himself well in racing. He's not been overly demanding of his team. I was really impressed this weekend by the fact that he acknowledged that Quartararo has had rotten luck and that it was luck that was undeserved and that it, you know, it's it's not the easiest things to say about a title rival of yours, even though it's a, it's an easier thing to say in a position where you're 20 points ahead. Um, but all that, you know, all that said, that's, as, as Matt indeed puts it, that is absolutely, I think, part of it because Bastianini will need to assert himself against the guy because... Jack Miller couldn't. Miller, we many of us expected when he came into the Kati, him to lead the team at least initially. And Banyaya took that away from him right away. He took him away, took that away from him in their first two two races as teammates in the works team in Qatar. That was gone. Banyaya was the lead guy. So you have to start real early if you want to assert yourself. And Bastianini will know after this season, and I think all of us know uh, this is a, that he is a rider who can fight for the title. 
in 2023 if if things align. The the potential is absolutely there. I think he would have still been in the mix right now if the Red Bull ring curb strike damage thing didn't happen to this tire. He's he's been one of the best riders in MotoGP this season. So you have to like you have to make it clear you're not coming in as a number two. Whether the best way to do that is giving everybody in Duc- at Ducati heart attacks is a different question. But it, yeah, he strikes me as a like as a as a as a, as a genuinely canny, smart operator who is in control of the things he does on the bike and in control of the things he says off the bike. So yeah, it's, honestly, 2023 is going to be a blast. We'll get to him later. This is not to criticize Jorge Martin, who is also a very fun rider with a with an interesting personality. But Bagnaia Bastianini is a is a dream scenario in terms of storylines for Ducati. Like that's you you want to see that. You want to you want to sell a season on that as a selling point. I think we should actually quickly discuss Jorge Martin now because he's he's kind of the uh, the forgettable element of the race in a way given that he was so significant early on and then had that enormous crash and he is part of the bastianini Banyaya narrative as well because it could so easily have been him in the bastianini position but um you know both those both those riders bastianini and martina very early in their MotoGP careers and in my head i've kind of got a graph of young riders delivering on potential that's got um, or at least doing so consistently that's got miguel Oliveira at one end and bastianini at the other and at the moment martin feels like he's heading more towards the Oliveira end of the scale a lot of the time. How how do you two judge his, this weekend in particular where he was so quick, but in the end did just throw it all away? Uh, first, yeah, like, honestly, I think Miguel Oliveira has largely delivered on his on his potential so far. With I, his, his junior record is good, but it's not like MotoGP front runner good. So to win five races is just a complete detour. But it's yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it, it, it's it's an interesting one for me. Um, I'm going to do a, a crap thing right now and retell a joke I told on Twitter, but whatever. I, I wrote, I think, was it Saturday, maybe Sunday, but it's, you know, after the weekend, it stays the same. I wrote, if Ducati went into a lab and came out with uh, Jorge Martianini, it would win the next 10 riders title, so, which I think is accurate because Martin is the best rider in terms of Saturday performance relative to Sunday. And Bastianini is the best rider in terms of Sunday performance relative to Saturday. They have a clear qualifying specialist and a clear race specialist in 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 their in their stable. And and Martin, look, it's easy to criticize him for crashing out of the lead, and r- rightly so. But he smashed the lap record twice in a row now in in qualifying, and it never looked particularly even close. And with the you know with the other Ducatis also all theoretically on bikes that should be capable of those lap times but it's just these two weekends during practice and qualifying you just look up at the life timing and there's jorge martin six tenths clear and you're like uh where did that come from because that's just not something anybody else does really on a normal grip track in MotoGP. and i think that's quite something i'm honestly it is really weird because he got basically nothing out of these two races but I'm higher on Jorge Martin after these two weekends than I was before. It looks like he's on a very slow but a very steady forward learning curve. Um, we always knew that he'd be able to. So that one lap speed is like a characteristic of his entire career. It's what he did in Moto Three, especially um, before he was winning consistently. Before he won the title, it's what he was able to do in Moto Two. 
And then you only spent a brief time there, so you only kind of got to do it in Moto2 and didn't get to the next step. We're now at the stage in his MotoGP career where he's doing it here. He's, you know, just something else whenever it comes to one lap, like you say, Val. Um, the question is, can he convert that next year into consistent race winning performance? If you look at the rest of his career, then the answer is obviously yes. You know, it, it's just going to take a bit of time to get there. But the answer is obviously yes. His results this year, this like one lap speed, pole position, get to the front of the race, crash out, is basically what he did the first year he kind of came to form in Moto3. 2016, I think. Then 2017, he went out and blitzed the championship by just winning every race in pole position. Um, I, I think I have every reason to believe we're getting to that point. Um, but it's going to take a bit more time. Uh, in, in my motorsport experience, a good racer doesn't always become a good qualifier, but a good qualifier usually becomes a good enough racer. Yeah. Um, but of course, we're, we're also seeing, and I, I should caveat my previous statement, and Abastinini is now qualifying really well. Like, I'm, I'm not sure I can honestly call his Saturdays a weakness anymore. I mean, he was on the front row here. The last three European tracks, I think, he was on the front row in each of those. If that carries into 2023, then good luck, the rest of the MotoGP grid. Seriously, good luck. Well, I think this is this is the thing with the Martin Bastianini comparison. I'm a big fan of of what Martin's done so far. I think last year, particularly with the injury recovery, because that was absolutely savage, was so impressive. And to have a a few more wobbles in the second season, a few more shunts while still being really quick, and that's pretty standard rookie stuff. And and it's not a, a really a bad sign for the career necessarily. Um, but Bastianini is looking so complete for a rider so early in his MotoGP career. And okay, you could say Grassini's a step down the pecking order, so maybe a little bit less pressure expectation. But he's just he just delivers and delivers and delivers. And like you say, Val, I, I'm, we're prone to like early Larry predictions, and I've got I don't make no apologies for that because I love him. But I think at least two of us here see him as next year's most likely world champion right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'm I'm kind of there right now. But again, you say less pressure. I think that's less of a factor maybe than the more refined package. Yeah. Like that's that's the one that's, I think, you know, Martin has been keen to drive at home that he's been on a on a GP22 with an engine spec that uh, Bagnai didn't want. Whereas Bastianini is on a GP21 that was just you know the bee's knees at the end of at the end of last year this i mean that's clearly a factor and i mean that that'll play a part but the ducati jigsaw is particularly complicated yeah. this year isn't it in those terms even before you yeah. get into the fact that traditionally i don't know if it's been the case this year but as soon as someone's got a works ride for the following year they get more nice packages heading down there down there yeah. away from bologna with more shiny things in them so and that's not always a good thing that's, no, thing. True. that's yeah. you know sometimes that sends you kind of into a development yeah, testing, exactly. blah, 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 spiral. I mean, Bagnaia spent the first, like the only time Bagnaia has been really particularly grumpy this season is those first few races when he felt he was doing too much development work. What if Bastianini is in that boat next year? But I'm still I'm still really enamored with, with Bastianini's season and his 2023 prospects. And like, I don't know, 2023 title favorites, oh, it's just it's a scary sequence of words because you can look yourself, make yourself look really silly, but you know, to hell with it. It's a MotoGP podcast. You know, you listen for me to give my opinion, not for me to, you know, present a scientific paper with a conclusion and, you know, peer-reviewed, whatever. Yeah, I guess he is my title favorite. 
after our, our 2023 rider lineup predictions podcast i think we're just free to make whatever predictions we like because we're not going to get anything that wrong again <laughs> in my defense in our all of our defense i still blame suzuki withdrawn for that disaster yeah absolutely 100%. um it, it's funny that martin was was kind of intimating on sunday um so he's he's obviously set to get a gp23 for next season uh, him and Johan Zarco will get them as long as, as well as uh, Bastianini and Bagnaia, and what's a bit of a, a, a winding down of the five bikes that there are this year with the, the two VR46 and the two Grassini guys. We'll get 2022 bikes. But, um, you know, Martin was kind of saying on Sunday, I don't really want a GP23. I want a GP22 with the Peco engine, and that's all I really need. And, and you get, you know, there is an element of, of he still has that thing that he's on a different engine from everyone else. Simon, I'd be really surprised if the GP23 isn't the GP22 of the Peco engine. They don't need well. to do that much to this bike. <laughs> they don't need well, to there do is much. That too. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Right, we have talked a lot about Ducati so far and rightly so and we've barely mentioned the guy who had been leading the world championship for most of the season and now looks like he is almost certainly going to lose it but he did get back on the podium this weekend and considering what we know about what that Yamaha is capable of and all the things it can't do that Ducati can and the fact there's eight Ducatis on the grid how was Fabio Quattararo anywhere near the top three I just think that was one of his best rides of the year up there with Red Bull Ring absolutely it was it was one of his performances of the year and it's the first performance in a while that's made me look at him and think this guy is like i don't want to take anything away from bagnaia on, on the eve of him winning a championship but fabio quadra was the best rider in this grid like that that he showed it there and then he just to do that on the weekend that he needed to dig deep um should mean that he goes into valencia with a bit of a swagger thinking, you know what, I can still win this thing. Because even though he needs, you know, Bagnaia to essentially make a mistake, 
to to deliver it to him. He, whenever he was able to put on a performance that strong at a circuit that difficult for their bike on a weekend where he was under so much pressure, you know, chapeau to him. That was a uh, yeah. Um, he he admitted on Saturday afternoon uh, he didn't know if he'd ever if he if there was basically anywhere in the track that he'd be able to overtake because they were at such a horsepower advantage and disadvantage and such a an acceleration disadvantage. So he just made an amazing start, got well up the grid, and then basically didn't need to overtake anyone because he had a yeah. clear track. He needed to go fast. And looking at the the guys in front, looking at the, the Bastianini-Bagnaia battle, you know, we've talked at length about how that could have put Bagnaia under pressure, could have forced an error. Another five laps, and it might have let Quattararo catch the two of them. And then suddenly, you know, everything was on was up up to play for. Um, that's how strong he was. And I genuinely didn't expect, like I thought we were going into Sunday's race and he was going to concede his championship there and then because I just didn't see him getting through the wave of Ducatis. As you intimated, um, ultimately it would have been a different race without that good start because we've not actually seen any evidence of, I think, of Fabio being able to pass anyone because, you know, after that start, he got waved by by Morbidelli and then saw Marquez run wide at one of the corners in front of him and swoop past. That's you know, that's not that's not to take anything away from him. That's you know, that's just the Yamaha. And Fabio, very much to his credit, he's not going gently into that good night. He's uh he's given it a proper go, and he's he's given it a proper go in a way that will allow him to end the season thinking, I've left some points on the table, but I've done rides where I've made up for those points. And the rest of the difference is just the package difference. I think he'll he'll be able to go into the into the off season, you know. G- given that his defeat is likely, I'm you know, I'm presuming defeat here. Obviously, Valencia could get weird, but presuming it doesn't get too weird, he, I think he can go into the off season feeling feeling good about himself and what he did and how how he went about things. That said, I do think that a fit Mark Marquez is the best MotoGP rider on the grid. <laughs> but you know. Yeah. And- this is where we should definitely go next on our, on our list, I think. But um, bef- before that, I, I agree. Quattararo, when he looks back, okay, there's Assen. I, I didn't think, he, even before Philip Island, which was a mess, there were a few races where I just you could see that he was maybe getting more frustrated about his plight than he, not that he needed to, but it was having an impact. And there were, there were occasions where he left some points on the table there. But when you compare it to the first half of Banyaya's season, I think Quattararo can very easily go this winter. I, I barely let anything slip. All year there, I, I maximized pretty much everything I had given the bike that was underneath me. I mean, we, of course, we need to mention that he's he, he rode uh, Saturday qualifying and the Sunday race with a small fracture to his left middle finger, which he indicates didn't slow him. And it certainly didn't look like it slowed him because his, his pace uh, on Sunday was really, really very good. But the pain will have been significant. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, I think looking at the footage from the weekend <laughs> and some of the close-ups in the garage on Saturday, that's it's going to make anything involving gloves very painful for a little while. But actually, you're like finishing on the MotoGP podium, not really an issue. So <laughs> <laughs> just watch out for the gloves. I'm, I'm expecting um, rare podcast silence in the response to this. Is there any chance of Quattararo still winning this title? Uh, uh, instead of silence, I'm going to say uh, for 30 seconds. Is that going to yeah, work? It's... Um, <laughs> yeah, there absolutely is. I, I think 
this is MotoGP and weird things happen all the time. Um, I, d- I just feel like this, t- to me, this is like be another step of Valencia weird required, even above 2006, Nicky yes. Hayden, Valentino yes. Rossi, though, with the maths around it. It's, uh, it, yeah. it's I, I don't know if it's that weird. I mean, Bagnaia's done a fair bit of falling off this year. And Quattro has done a fair bit of winning at, you know, the traditional circuits of the calendar this year. Um, I can absolutely see a Quattro win happening. And I can absolutely see a Bagnaia DNF happening. It's whether or not both of them happen at the same time. That's the yeah. the real weird, the weird, you know, the, the, the thing that makes it an outside bet. Yeah, honestly. To me, the Quartararo win is the the less likely part by a by a pretty considerable margin, and that is why I'm you know obviously there are odds, but I'm not I'm not much of a believer. I think too many things have to have to align. First of all, the race has to be dry in the wets. I don't think Fabio is winning anything. Um, obviously, Banya has to fall off, and he basically he has to fall off because otherwise he's finishing within the within the top fourteen, um, and then. Jorge Martin, Enea Bastianini, Jack Miller all have to under-deliver. Like, I, you know, it's not going to magically become a different track than the track that allowed Ducati to go 1-2-3 in the qualifying and, and the race last year. Because Ducati's even stronger relative to the rest this year. Um, if, if all the Ducatis somehow get, like, they all go to one restaurant, they get food poisoning, then maybe... <laughs> But otherwise, I, oh, it's, I don't, I don't see it. I think the the biggest element for me is, yeah, okay, Banyar has his moments of tumbling off the bike, but all he has to do is get those couple of points, and that's never been the situation for him before. Now, okay, that can screw with your mind as well, and maybe that makes him ride awkwardly. You know, he talked about riding awkwardly on Saturday this weekend, and that contributing to his his messy practice and qualifying, but like. You know, he's just got to finish in looking back at, at recent results, the kind of portion of the grid that is like the RNF Yamahas and Raul Fernandez. And, you know, these are people who finish around 13th, 14th most weeks. On that on that Ducati, Banyai doesn't have to do a lot other than keep himself out of trouble to beat those guys, even if Quattararo gets the miracle win. The miracle win that he hasn't had, that he hasn't had a win at all since June. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, reminds me of a... And this is just going to be a really dumb niche reference, but Matt, you actually might remember this somehow. There was a British F3 season, British Formula 3, when there were six cars. Yeah, six cars on the, <laughs> There were six cars on the grid. And coming into the final race, the guy who eventually became champion just basically needed to finish. Needed to finish because the points for sixth or whatever were enough. And he just dropped to the back at the very beginning and rode there for the for the race to make sure he picks up the points and wins. Banyak can't quite do that because MotoGP is just a bit too competitive for that. You can't guarantee a 14th place finish by just doing nothing, by cruising around and waving at the crowd. And if he does somehow drop back into that into that thick of it, into the pack, you you hear MotoGP riders basically every weekend say that. You know, you see the race out front and it's well behaved. Everyone sort of, you know, goes fine. The lunges are fine. There's, you know, there's one or two Larry moments or whatever, but they go, but at the back, it's total mayhem. It's complete anarchy. Everybody's insane. Like I've heard multiple <laughs> riders say that by now. Um, but the most likely outcome, if Banyai decides to points race, the most likely outcome is he starts on the front row. He's, I don't know, 
third after the start or whatever. And then if he's really not feeling it, he just drops back to seventh or something, finishes seventh, wins, wins the title. But yeah, but it's, it's again, he, as he himself put it, thinking that way is uh, actually can be a pretty decent way of throwing it away. So he'll, I think he'll try to go about it the usual. And maybe, look, maybe we'll, what we'll see on Friday and Saturday will suggest anyway that Fabio just can't win. And that'll, that'll make that easier. There is one thing I will say is um, if Bagnaia finishes the race, he'll win the championship. Because, simply put, one third of the grid are Ducatis. Ah. There's no way on earth he finds himself in 16th place <laughs> without at least one Ducati in front of him. Oh, yeah. That, that's, you know, that, that's where the, the grid domination comes into play. Yeah, good point. It's that that, that DTM championship yeah. finish where like 12 yeah. Mercs let through a yeah. Merc. You know, it, it, yeah. It, yeah. It, that's the numbers yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Just imagine the, imagine the mental image of like Fabio running first and then seven Ducatis behind them and all of them <laughs> pulling off one by one to the side of the track while Banyaya makes it into the points. I still remember going to Valencia at 15 for the championship decider and Danilo Petrucci basically uh, going into the gravel at turn one, making enough room to let Valentino Rossi through. <laughs> I mean, actually, that, that 2015 reference, what was it? How did that unfold at the front? Was that Lorenzo trying to back everybody up? Or was that no, 15 diff- is the the famous one. It's- was it 2013 when yes. Lorenzo was yeah, trying to yes. back everybody up to st- anybody else? Gert Marquez. If Cotteraro somehow gets anywhere near the front, that is a tactic. Is it just park it on the apex and hope someone bumps into Bagnaia? But- love that Lorenzo race. That was a... So just very canny and smart. Big fan of yeah, that. I I love that Lorenzo race too. I also like that by halfway point he was like, okay, fuck this, this doesn't work. <laughs> and gave up. And I also I earned our, ourselves the explicit rating anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna so, say you, whoops. <laughs> you, you, you didn't deploy it via Jack Miller, you wasted and did it yourself. So thanks, yeah. well. So apologies <laughs> to everybody's children. Can, can we now say can we now say what Jack Miller said? We may as well. Yeah, he said it's fuck all for fourth place. So that's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, if any of you are unsure and we're trying to get Yes, there you go. That's <laughs> that's that solved. Um, right, a little a couple of minutes ago, uh, we we mentioned how Mark Marquez was the best rider on the grid, or rather Val did. Uh, and yeah, there was another big chunk of evidence this weekend in the Mark Marquez is back to his best and can fight for next year's title file. I'd say. Yeah, no, he's good. I just like I don't think the weekend was that good. Like I'm I'm on the opposite side of of the fence to Simon on this one. Like. It, it proved to me conclusively that there are tracks where Mark, in his current state, can't quite overcome the fact that the Honda is not competitive, which in previous years, I, that suggests to me that this Honda is less competitive than even the some of the really questionable Hondas he's had in the past. Um, I know it's a physical track. I know all that, but it's just, you know, his, his pace never looked all that comfortable. He had to... Like looking at the weekend, he really properly deployed his bag of tricks. He basically shadowed Banyaya every time he could. Um, and yet somehow still managed to do two really good laps by himself. But again, really good. Like, I guess they were really good. I mean, you know, out of Q1 in front row, good laps, but what, seven tenths off pole? Yeah. There's only so much. I think there's only so much he can do right now. And it's, it's a weird thing to say about Mark because. What we've grown accustomed with him is that there's nothing he can't do because of 2019 when he just, which was nonsense. It was a nonsense year. 
if if we ever see Mark of 2019 again, then of course he's going to win the championship again, obviously. Well, to me, anyway. To me, that's obvious. I know a lot of people, certain people in this podcast will disagree. But anyway, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't too encouraged by this weekend. I just saw it as like, oh, another case of, you know, Mark being 10 hours away ahead of every other Honda. But in this case, that only meant seventh. Uh, yeah. So as, as Val's hinted, I disagree, um, which will come as no surprise whatsoever. Um, we've we've watched Mark since he came back from injury the first time, second time, I guess it is, um, at the start of 2021. So we, we've watched him since then doing this thing that we never saw Mark Marquez do before, where he's basically waiting for a tow for other riders and qualifying to get a fast lap time. And then on Saturday, that plan kind of fell apart, I think, because... There was a bit of outfoxing going on, and then he made all the Ducatis crash in front of him. <laughs> and, and he just kind of went full, like, Thanos, fine, I'll do it myself, and just went and did a lap time. And it, it just, it you know, it answers all the questions about, is this towing thing just a mind trick? And it turns out, yeah, it probably is, because he was still quick enough to get in the front row without any, uh, you know, any, any need for anyone else in front of him. Um, I think maybe the fact that he didn't get closer to to that amazing pull up of Martin is less to do with the fact that he's not fully capable of it and more to do with the fact that he did actually decide to go alone at the one circuit a year where you really, really kind of do need a toe if you're not in an ultra-fast Ducati. Um, and that the gap is probably more indicative of that than anything else. Um, he's looking it it just looked to me like another step in the whole putting together the puzzle of being back thing um i, I agree that 2019 mark marquez isn't coming back because you can't take three years out of this championship and come back and expect to be that dominant it just it's just too close and too competitive and it's evolving too much as well to make that happen but do i think he's going to start next season after um three months of really intense physio to get a shoulder into shape in a position where he's at least a championship contender who can ride around a lot of the Honda problems, then yeah, absolutely. Oh, I do too. I should say, I, I, I absolutely I, do. I, I, he's not going to 2019 it, but he's going to you know try and 2015 it. The thing for me, though, that made, that made, that made this race more evidence of the, of the proper return was that qualifying lap. I, I kind of, I almost forgot what Marquez was doing in the race because... You know, like you said, it's sort of experiment time anyway, and he, he isn't fully, fully, fully fit. But that qualifying lap had so many elements of proper, proper Marquez. Like you say, the intimidation of people beforehand, the pulling a lap out of the blue anyway. Okay, he was seven tenths off Martin, but he was a second quicker than every other Honda. I know that's not the best benchmark because the rest of the lineup is, for various reasons, currently rubbish, basically. But it still had all the hallmarks of, of real Marquez pulling something incredible out of the bag. And Q1 to front row is just... that. In earlier in his returns, if you saw those flashes of proper Marquez, it was followed by a crash pretty soon afterwards, or he had a ridiculous crash. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the uh, Mandalika weekend, and just that was. If you take Mandalika as evidence that Marquez is never coming back, that to be him again, he has to push himself so far over the edge that he's just permanently concussed. Then, you know what happened this weekend? I just think shows how far away we are from that world for him now, and that he can produce magic. And it's sort of sustainable. He just he just needs a few percent more fitness, the bike to be a little bit closer to the front. He doesn't you know, it doesn't have to be the best bike. It's Marquez. 
he can still he can still do it. I, w- I was massively encouraged for the chance of uh, of this this dream I've got of Quattararo versus Banyaya versus Bastianini versus Marquez in the four way title fight next year. And, and the other thing to throw in there was so for one he spent all weekend saying you know the the, the rest of the season is about working for the twenty twenty three bike, and we can see that because they're chopping between different swing arms and frames and they're doing a lot of moving around in the bike. They're doing a lot of data capture. And I think maybe a lot of that happened on Sunday because they lost Friday to intermittent weather conditions. So I think maybe that changed the plan for the race. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, there's the fact that we're racing at Sepang and it's the hottest place on earth, a hard break in track. It's super physical. And he always knew he was going to struggle physically. Um, Cal Crutchlow gave us a, a very detailed explanation after the race about how a few years ago he was part of a medical experiment here where he swallowed a thermometer uh, to measure his core temperature before the race. And his core body temperature was above 40 degrees before turn one. And the guy who was the, the sports scientist who was doing the, the, the test came to the conclusion that there's no sport on earth where your body temperature is as high as it is in MotoGP because you're racing at 35 degrees and 80% humidity on a 500-degree motorcycle in leather. <laughs> and, and so let, let's not underestimate that that either. You know, he's not fit. He's, he's back and he's fit, but he's not the machine that he was in the gym a few months ago or a few years ago. Sorry. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Uh, let's quickly light a candle of morning for the Aprilia unlikely title bid, which is now officially over. And it ended in a, in a fairly Aprilia way with them finishing down the order and Alicia Sp- Espagaro being really angry about something in a really quotable way. So we're going to keep it fairly brief because <laughs> we've given Aprilia a lot of deserved time over the year, but not going to be champions this year. It's over. All right. Well, so what's the what's the running time of Amazing Grace and which of us is going to... Which was interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, look, it suddenly the bike just wasn't fast enough. And that's, I think, there, there have been a lot of operational issues and all that noise, but you can't win a gunfight with a knife, which is ultimately in the end is what it came down to. The bike's still, you know, it's still good. It's still taking a massive step forward, but at these new overseas track clear, tracks, clearly, I guess they're just missing the data or something. When I say new, I mean new post COVID. I don't mean new, new, obviously. Sepang isn't, wasn't built yesterday, as far as I know. Um, it's kind of a, it's an unpleasant ending because it would have been so nice if they just took it down to the final race. Like, I don't think it's not their year to win the title, but I, like, it would have been, it would have been cool if it finished with maybe being taken down to the final race, maybe like a podium or a top five, or like a really heroic ride. And instead it finished with, um, well, first of all, Maverick Vinales falling out of the points and looking like Yamaha spec Maverick Vinales again, which is something Aprilia has to has to look at now. Not not just in terms of because I don't think not in terms of how even he addresses the media because I think that's still like a little bit different. But in terms of like when when the weekend sucks for Maverick, it really sucks. 
Like it sucks like for nobody else. It's it's a very special level of drop off when like when he doesn't feel it, it all it all goes on Sunday. It just goes to hell. Um, but yeah, that's what happened to Maverick. And for Leash at all, like this season that was this good ended with him being unceremoniously barged out of the way by Franco Morbidelli. Double long lap penalty, Franco Morbidelli for 10th place after a weekend that was just crud all throughout. Just no good. In which he had to desperately try and latch onto Jorge Martin at every opportunity in which <laughs> it was this weekend, right? Because... Uh, uh, my my brain is mush, but it, it was this weekend that his Friday just didn't exist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it stinks a bit. It's it's not to to be mean to Aprilia or anything because they've done a phenomenal job this year, and they're, they're again they're a young team, they're new to all this, and it's a it's a hard life. But yeah, just it's not not a very fitting end to the to the Cinderella story. The the good thing about it is. I thought this was going to be a one-off. I thought this was like Aprilia's sole chance to ever win a MotoGP championship. And now I'm not so sure because I think next year they can start similarly. They're going to have four bikes in the grid, so they're going to have double the amount of data every weekend to help move things along. They're, you know, they've understood what it is to fight for a championship now. Like Alicia has been here 18 years and you get set in your ways. He admitted as much, you know, that, that there's been an element of being not having to do things this way. Um, I had a, a, a long chat on Saturday night, I think, as I was leaving the media center with their press officer who was telling me that, you know, he spent this weekend talking to fellow press officers at teams like Ducati and Yamaha to understand how they'd cope with uh, the winter media commitments of a championship contending team because they've never had to do that before. So there, there's so much to, you know, to the lessons that they've learned this year that they can put into place. And I think that, yeah, what we thought was a one-off might not be. I, I, yeah. Especially with Vinales on the other side of the garage as well. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I need to see, I feel like I need to see a lot from Aprilia in the first few months of next year. I need to see Vinales announce he's fast enough to win a race and then not finish 18th in it because that's just, I'm getting a bit yeah. bored of that, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. I, I still have a slight suspicion as much as Aprilia's improved. Yeah, Ducati starting the year weirdly, Yamaha spending most of the year a bit weird, uh, uh, Honda, blah. When when, the, when those three teams operate how they should be operating with bikes working as they should work, I don't I, I don't know where even an approved Aprilia really fits in near the front of the field, to be honest, as much as I love what they've done this year, I'd love to see more of it. But yeah, maybe four bikes make a difference. I think it's kind of like Suzuki 2020, except Suzuki 2020, they actually got it over the line. Yeah. But yeah. Like I also, you know, Suzuki, now that it's leaving, I can definitely say this. I do not think like in, in a normal conventional season, there was any chance of a Suzuki champion. And again, I can say this because they're leaving and they're not going to prove me wrong. So. <laughs> Very safe prediction. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd go with that. But yeah, even even I still see Aprilia as another step down the underdog universe than um, than Suzuki even there. Um, so we've we talked a lot about what's been a very tense but quite sensible championship battle i, I want to before we get to the end of this episode i, I really want to talk about moto too because what was that like what was i i can't i haven't got any sentences for it it's just this is ridiculous does anyone want that championship what is going on nope no one does it's uh, it, it 
it's it's not just been this race there's you know no, no exactly it's it's been the championship nobody wants to win to the point where like at a certain point you can just the only thing you can do is you can go to slack and type lol in the chat and just hit post there's nothing else <laughs> yeah. you can say well th- th- this this is it quite often um listeners i i sort of follow moto 3 moto 2 if i haven't started my shift yet by just seeing what simon and val are chatting about in the race slack channel and then just working out what i need to decipher <laughs> yeah. and so my moto 2 i started at, at, at moto gp race time on sunday and so my introduction to moto 2 was bt's highlights clips and these two chatting about it and it's just like <laughs> for the benefit of anyone in my position can we quickly summarize what happened and just decide who who on earth actually deserves that championship tony arbolito got a good start ran away with it i championship contender ayagura who had like a 12 point lead going into it decided that he was going to win the race and forgot he was fighting for a championship with (laughs) five or six laps to go put a real aggressive move at arbolino and ran wide and i tweeted to say he needs to remember he's fighting for a championship. And then a few laps later, he went and fell off. Um, and now he goes into the... Was it, was it a move on Arbolino? Was he, was he leading by himself and buckled to allow Arbolino through and then the aggressive move? He, or was that an entirely... I think that was an entirely separate... Oh, dear. Okay, so he nearly crashed, definitely. Yeah, 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 once, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. then he nearly crashed, except he didn't nearly crash, he fell off. And now yeah. Augusto Fernandez goes into the into the champion, into the final round at home in Spain, looking like he's basically got a championship. Um, it's just been mayhem all year. And then there's, you know, like, let's not forget how the season started with Celestino Vietti doing, like, four podiums in a row Mm -hmm. including like three wins and now he's just like it's like oh no Augusto Fernandez has crashed again anyway or sorry Celestino Vietti has crashed again and he just crashes he just falls off every race Um, Aaron Canet has gone home early from the championship fight he's just kind of (laughs) faded out of it Um, it's just been yeah you know you look at the championship standings now and the guys, and then you look at the race results, and the guys who are consistently in the podium every weekend took a while to get up to speed and are nowhere in the championship. Yeah. But you know, it, it like in theory, it should be like Alonso Lopez, Jake Dixon, and Pedro Acosta fighting yeah. for this championship. You know, like let's like uh, uh, Alonso Lopez joined the season in Le Mans after the team unceremoniously sacked. Uh, Romano Fanati, and he's now fighting for Rookie of the Year. Yeah, yeah. Like that's how messed up this this season has been in Moto Two. It's just this. This is total mayhem. Yeah, Alonso Lopez is is a rider of the season, and if the UN General Assembly passed a resolution <laughs> to just give him the title, I think that'd be ultimately <laughs> fine. I like I I'm being glib and dismissive. Um, Obviously, look, if you put me on Hayagura's bike in that in that case, I crash 15 times and break every bone in my body. It's it's a hard job. I'm never putting you on a bicycle, let alone a MotoGP bike. <laughs> Val, Val asked me on Sunday if the if the front brake was on the right. Okay, well <laughs> So let's not put him on a motorbike. I meant specifically in that specific in that specific case. I did not mean generally. They're all the same, Val, they're all the okay. same. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you, you've blown my cover as a as a dirty filthy car guy as if i actually know how the cars work yeah, was <laughs> <laughs> all right I, how did i turn this into a self-roast this was supposed to be an ayagura roast it's not a roast of val uh anyway also it was like 3 a.m that cut me some stuff. anyway um yeah 
I don't know how, in, the thing is, Augusto Fernandez was in the same position the week before, in a position to bring home a good race finish without, you know, and give himself a big championship lead heading into the two final races, and he fell. And then obviously Agura, who just needed to finish second and then chill in Valencia, did, did the insane thing he did. Um, it's a, look, I like close title races and I, I like all of those guys individually, but this has been a mess. I have no idea who these people is MotoGP ready. I don't, I don't understand what's happening there. Um, <laughs> but I, I do now know where the, where the front rake is. So that's, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just looking at the championship standings here. And, and basically every championship contender is only a championship contender because they've done like a block of podiums and then have spent the rest of the year falling off. Like it's, it's you know, they've all got like blocks of, you know, Augusto Fernandez has like a, a run of six races where he won four of them. Um, Aaron Canet was like six races in a row in second. Um, Celestino Vieira, those five races at the start of the year, he's since fallen off at eight times in races. Like, it is just the championship that no one wants. It's wild. Quite a contrast to how Moto3 sorted itself out in the end as well. Yeah, um, I think we, we kind of get into a bit of a rhythm in Moto3 earlier on where it was always going to be between the two gas-gas-aspar uh, riders, um, Izan Guevara and Sergio Garcia. And Guevara is, like, next-level talent. Yeah. Like, he's... He's going to go all the way. Um, he's going to come into Moto2 next year and I think be winning races the way that Pedro Acosta was this year. And then the year after, he's going to be in MotoGP team shopping lists already because he's just that good. Um, but then, you know, just to throw... That's not why you wanted to mention Moto3 now, is it? You have a different reason for mentioning <laughs> Moto3, don't you? My my other issue, my other reason for wanting to mention Moto3, as Val has hinted to, is more to just complain about the fact that Moto3 has an age limit, which is the most ridiculous thing ever put into the series because we saw one of the rides of the season on Sunday from John McPhee and what is his penultimate Moto3 race because he's turned 28 and he's going to get kicked out of the series. And uh, you know, I'd forgotten about this until it happened, but... I ended up in a Twitter conversation with Efren Vasquez on Sunday evening and the exact same thing happened to him. He was second in his penultimate Moto3 race before he got kicked out of the championship for aging out. Um, and, and you know, he went on and did a mediocre season in Moto2 and then got hired as KTM's Moto3 test rider. And he's like 36 now and still riding Moto3 bikes for KTM and is super fast on them. Um, yeah, I don't like that. The series has an age limit. It, it's it's not a feeder class. It's a Grand Prix class in its own right. It's weird. That, that's really dashed my dreams because I'm 28 and that means I'll never get to race in Moto3 You'll and never learn, be a learn where the rear brake is. Like I know about the front one. Yeah. <laughs> now you've learned the, the brake thing as well. Yeah. You, you, you feel a lot closer to it than you did at the start of this podcast. I knew about the brake thing. Please. Please. <laughs> It's it really interesting point, Simon, because I remember when I was first getting into MotoGP 15 something years ago now, the, the, the culture of the of the what was then the feeder categories 250 and 125 also being destination categories was so different to what I was used to having grown up as a, as a car racing fan, where it's like if you're over 22 in, you know, back then in Formula 3000, what is the point of you? Um, 
I do see the point that traditionally those have been destination championships and you can be a world champion for year after year at the lower levels in your own right and that is a great achievement. But in the modern era, is it really that way? I mean, certainly in the time I followed it in, in depth, which is from the mid-2000s, it has just naturally gone further further towards that car racing junior series model of this is the feeder category. You're not really taken seriously if you've been in this championship too long. And, you know, the, the likes of Vasquez and, and McPhee, even regardless of the age limit, or maybe it is because of the age limit being there, you don't see as many people, I was going to say tugging around. That's really harsh. I don't mean that. It doesn't apply to those guys, but there are people who who traditionally would tug around in the 250cc midfield forever. And I did always find that a little bit offensive. The, the problem with that is that there's no age limit in Moto2 and all those guys are still there in Moto2. So it just <laughs> backs up the system at a different point. You know, you, you've still got, like, without singling out people, you've still got Marcel Schroeder and Simone Corsi. Without singling out people here, here are people that I'm... That I'm yeah, I know, I know, I know. I was like, yeah, no, screw it. I'm just going to commit to it. Um, you know, but you've got those guys who are, like, mid-30s cruising around in Moto2, taking up seats, arguably, that um, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't solve the problem by just bumping in it, sticking an age limit in one class. It just bumps it up a level, yeah. and, and that's going to be especially an issue in the future because uh, you know we've got now the Moto three age limit going from eighteen from sixteen to eighteen, but the corresponding upper age limit hasn't been adjusted to suit that. Um, which is you know a bit unfair. There's also the fact then that that you know it's it's a matter of fact that you start later whenever you come from certain countries in MotoGP. Yeah. Um, if you're British or German or American or Australian, you come into the sport at a later age. Um, and this is another rule that you know favors the Spanish and the Italian kids, which is something we should be trying to move away from if we want a a more global championship. Yeah, I, I should say to, to what you said, Matt. I think there's a there's a happy medium between the, the the making the junior classes basically exactly the F1 situation of they're just you know completely secondary, but also at least we've moved we're, we're moving away from the tradition of counting all of those titles as one tally of world titles. Look, I I love Lorenzo Della Porta, but his Moto Three title is not at the same level as Fabio Quartararo's Moto GP title. Let's 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 yeah. make that very clear in the record books. I think, um, you know, there's there's a happy medium because ultimately, Moto GP is rightly king. Moto GP is the best grid with the best bikes and the best riders in the world, and that's you know, um, that should always be priority. And Moto Three and Moto Two play a commendable role in even even now like whatever we say about the the age thing it's you know, it's as good as ever in terms of the talent they pump into MotoGP year after year again i like, i keep mentioning it we're, we're about to have three guys from the 2019 class who came all from Moto2 three guys are now going to be MotoGP champions and the guy who isn't is a five-time MotoGP race winner they're good classes man they're good yeah yeah absolutely I, I judge quite a lot of things through the prism of uh, website traffic figures, and this is this is another one of them. Uh, on on this idea of whether the lower title should be seen as same sort of value, traditionally, when I was working places that covered all the all the junior series a little bit more, if it was say a uh, Tito Rabat's maybe a bit of a harsh one, but I think he does count. 
um, or particularly like a Tom Lutie race win, the level of interest in that particular report was way lower than if it was someone who was already linked to a MotoGP team who was clearly heading mm-hmm. up, if it was someone yeah. who was doing what they were doing as a rookie or super young, so had that buzz around them. And that is exactly the same sort of readership yeah. interest stats as you'd see for F2, F- F3 in, in car racing as well. So, you know, I, I wasn't following motorbike racing in the 80s and 90s when maybe that was different and you could be a a superstar in in 250s and have the same sort of profile but really MotoGP hogs the attention now so to to be noticed in Moto2 Moto3 you've got to be someone who's clearly heading for MotoGP I'd say yeah uh, we've got one more topic that we want to hit and uh, I've got I've accidentally had a habit in the in my three podcast standard appearances of of ending on the slightly bleak serious topic uh, in, in two of the three but one of the most striking images from the weekend was the safety commission meeting and you know, I work on the news desk. You hear the safety commission talked about so much when there's a controversial decision, when there's a penalty, when someone's furious about riders following each other, or you know, or in, even an injury, a serious situation. And particularly this week, after what happened at Phillip Island in the Moto Two race with Jorge Navarro's injury and how it was handled, safety commission that was going to be a big flashpoint. And then you see a picture of it, and there's basically no one there. What is that about? First of all, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we've touched on the on the Navarro crash and crash handling at all in the pod. I don't remember if it happened last week. Again, I do not remember anything that's happened beyond like an hour ago. But obviously, that was horrifying. It's terrible, and it is a terrible sight. And you know, the pictures. Just go look up the pictures of Navarro sitting there wailing in pain, his mouth open, clearly screaming, and then just like 15 Moto Two bikes whizzing by. Like, what are we doing at that point? With that out of the way, Aleish put it best. Either come or don't complain to the media. It's yeah. simple as. This is, uh, as long as you do not have an established riders union. And maybe, like, if you feel you're too busy during race weekends, which I guess is a partly reasonable thing to say because it is a busy life. But if you, like, either... Pick a rotating core of representatives, make it like a duty, rotating duty of riders like, oh, I have to go that weekend because we've agreed, but I can miss the next weekend. Or don't, but even that's like, that's unsatisfying. Like, just come, go there. It's important. It's your life. So um, Simon gathered the the information on this. And I I think it's only fair that we name the people who did come because it was... I think eight people out of 24. Yeah. We don't, yeah. maybe more, but I don't think so. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I spoke to the people that yeah. were there. Okay, so it was it was the Suzuki riders, Jean Mir and Alex Rins. It yeah. was Alessio Spargo and it was his brother Paul. It was Maverick Vinales, yeah. Spargo's teammate. It was Jorge Martin of Pramac Ducati. And it was the two factory Ducatis of Becco Bagnaia and Jack Miller. And I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I guess you could, if you're making an argument in defense, you could say, do other riders feel they don't get listened to, so it's not worth it? But I just I'm just don't think that's the point, really. No, no. I mean, we spoke to multiple riders over the course of the, the preceding days to the safety commission after the Jorge Navarro incident. And, and, you know, just to put that into the real level of seriousness that it was, uh, the, the broken bone in his leg, he broke his femur in that crash and was screaming in pain, but the femur cut his femoral artery. We could have been writing very different stories about that outcome. Um, And then you go and ask writers, 
And and do you know what? I'm going to name some names because you go and ask writers like Mark Marquez about it. And they said, yeah, it's really serious. We're going to have to discuss it in the Safety Commission. And then you see they didn't go to the Safety Commission. Like, come on, guys, just have a bit of respect for yourself and the guys around you. And I have to say, in this case, like we traditionally, we don't always get answers when we ask tough questions of the MotoGP organizers. On In this case, uh, Mike Webb, the race director, did uh, did answer your questions, did explain race control side of things the facts are out there you know people can make their own conclusions about uh about the two the two views of this incident how it was handled but webb's position was that the information they were being given was not sufficient to call a red flag and that there were things to be learned in terms of ambulance and marshal positioning so that you know that can be tackled quicker in the future but an explanation was there that could be challenged and riders had every right to challenge it and the forum for that was the safety commission so yeah again use it i mean if if you're going to challenge it in any way, they they, they say that uh, the reason you lose a lap for going through a yellow flag without slowing down is to protect the, the guys at the side of the track. But if there's a guy standing at the side of the track in such a dangerous position and they don't stop the race, why would you bother listening to yellow flag instructions anymore? What's the point? Uh, and, you know, if I was a writer, I'd go with that angle. Um, you may remember, you know, like regarding, like you named specifically Marquez, which it is it is very interesting that he didn't go. I wonder if in Mark's case, because of his elder statesman status, there is a misguided view from his end that his his public word is enough or that he can always personally contact whoever he wants to contact to make his point. Because I think a few writers operate under, under that assumption. Because you will remember, maybe, because I struggle to remember it by now, but ultimately I did, uh, six years ago, Louis Salon passed away in Moto2, and there was a whole discussion about MotoGP riders, between MotoGP riders in the press conference about safety commission meeting attendance in terms of you know, how the Barcelona track was going to get modified. And Marquez, really publicly, and with Jorge Lorenzo in attendance, putting Lorenzo and other guys who didn't go, didn't go to the safety commission basically on blast, those guys being Lorenzo, Valentino Rossi, don't remember who else, but those are basically the two big names. And Lorenzo having to defend himself, basically. But it's just, I think what it goes back to is the, it's 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 informal, all very informal and all, everybody sort of has their own channels and it's the same, it's the same sort of side of the coin as with the stewards as it feels like instead of a very formal investigation process, it's just, you know, you go to the stewards and hash it out and then you leave without like a formal invitation or anything. You just go there if you feel like going there. Um, that's, you know, that to me is a problem, but a more serious side of that problem because it's about very serious safety matters. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad that photo exists. I'm glad you've had a chance to put that to, uh, to riders a bit more. I'd, I'd love to see another photo from a safety commission in a couple of races time and see the whole, the whole field there. But I just feel like if the, in the circumstances of this week that didn't happen, then Use it or, or stop moaning. Basically, I think is a is a fair conclusion. Yeah, they should say they should do like you attend the safety the safety commission. You get an extra soft rear tire for Michelin. <laughs> I was going to say you, you attend the safety commission or you get automatically muted when you start saying anything a bit moany in your in your media session. But actually, we, we need those moans for for our website and podcast. So don't do that. Would work. Ah, that's good. Or like honestly, or just go to Q one. That's good. Yeah. I think Val's, Val's on to something, but you're going the wrong way. If you don't go to the Safety Commission, you lose a soft rear. 
that's how you frame it. <laughs> right. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much, Val. Um, I'm not going to be on the next podcast because Toby Moody is back, so he'll be here next week. Because you're quitting. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm quitting. I'm quitting till. I'm quitting till. I'm quitting till Daniela Petrucci is next required for podcast duties, and then I'll pop back from whatever I'm doing and um, wobble around at the back of the field looking endearing. Um, but no, next week it'll be Toby here with these guys previewing uh, MotoGP's final round decider, which is not something we can say very often. It's not that tense because there's 23 points in it, but it's still a final round decider. Um, there's plenty to read on the race in the build-up to that about MotoGP and F1, another Grand Prix next weekend in Mexico. But MotoGP, thankfully for the state of all of us, has a weekend off. Um, thank you very much for your company, and we'll speak to you next week ahead of the title decider. The Athletic.